Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to Texas History Lessons. This is another special bonus episode. I'd like to thank friend of the show, Jay, for suggesting that I do an episode on the great Galveston Storm Hurricane of 1900, and he did it in such a perfect time because I'm releasing this on the 120th anniversary, September 8th, 2020 is the 120th anniversary of the great Galveston Hurricane of 1900. Now, I have to say, I am a little biased regarding this because I, I love Galveston. I love visiting Galveston every chance I get. It's a, it's a lovely city, a wonderful island. It's just a pleasure to go to. It has a different feel to it, as they say on the official tourism site for the island shares something worth noting. Part southern, part Texan, a bloom with towering oleanders of every color and encompassing more history and stories than cities 20 times its size, Galveston is often called the Republic of Galveston Island by its residents because it's so unlike the rest of Texas. And it does have a different feel to it. So what's this episode going to be about? We're going to be taking a look at what happened on Saturday, September 8th, 1900. A massive Category 4 hurricane ripped through Galveston, killing over 6,000 people, up to 8,000 people in Galveston City itself, and up to a total of 12,000 people, including that number, on the whole island and in coastal areas. It obliterated the city of Galveston, and it had a huge impact on the future of that city, and it remains the greatest natural disaster in terms of death in the history of the United States. I've got to be covering a lot about Galveston's history in the, in the future, so I just want to do a little tiny brief flyover to get us to September 8th, 1900. But for those of you not aware of much about Galveston, I want to just share a little bit about it. Galveston Island is part of the string of sand barrier islands along the southeast coast of Texas and on the Gulf of Mexico, 50 miles southeast of Houston. On its eastern end, where the city stands, the currents of Galveston Bay maintain a natural harbor, which has historically provided the best port site between New Orleans and Veracruz. The island runs parallel to the coast two miles out and is 27 miles long and less than three miles wide at its widest point. Between the island and neighboring Pelican Island runs the Galveston Channel, which forms a natural harbor for 19th century sailing vessels and small steamers. The gap between Galveston Island and Bolivar Peninsula offers the principal entrance into Galveston Bay. The Karankawa people were the original periodic inhabitants of the island, visiting it and using it for hunting and fishing. It is also the possible location of the shipwreck landing of Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca in 1528. 
getting to him pretty soon, so we'll tell that story later. Spanish navigator Jose Antonio de Avia surveyed the island, bay, and harbor in 1785 at the instruction of Bernardo de Galvez and named the bay in his honor. The Spaniards at that time called it Snake Island, but later mapmakers started applying the name of Galveston to the island and then also to the city. Pirate brothers Pierre and Jean Lafitte briefly made the island the center of their privateering and slave trade until the United States threatened them, convinced them to abandon the site in 1821. Mexico that designated Galveston a port of entry in 1825 and established a small customs house there in 1830. During the Texas Revolution, the harbor served as the port for the Texas Navy and the last point of retreat of the Texas government when Santa Ana had all the Texians on the run. Galveston, the city, was born in December 1836, or at least it was started into being then when Michelle B. Menard organized the Galveston City Company to promote the town of Galveston. The group of investors obtained ownership of 4,605 acres at the harbor. They platted the land in gridiron fashion and adopted the name of Galveston. Galveston became a port of call in 1837 and was made a port of entry for the Republic of Texas. The Menard group began selling town lots in 1838. The following year, the Texas legislature granted incorporation to the city of Galveston with the powers to elect town officers. A steam ferry began operation to the mainland in May of 1842. A bridge was completed in 1859 when the Galveston, Houston, and Henderson Railroad built a wooden trestle that was used by all the other rail lines to the island. Until 1875, when the Gulf, Colorado, and Santa Fe Railroad built its own bridge. And the city flourished. Cotton flowed out of its port while agricultural supplies and immigrants flowed in. There was a downturn statewide during the Civil War, but Galveston recovered after its end. Galveston quickly became the most active port west of New Orleans and the largest city in the state of Texas. Galveston ranked as the largest city in 1870 with 13,818 people. And also in 1880, with 22,248, Galveston built the state's first post office, first opera house, first hospital, first golf course, first country club. The list goes on and on. It had the first structure in Texas to use electric lighting, the Galveston Pavilion, the first Texas telephone, and the first baseball game played in Texas was, yep, in Galveston. The Galveston News, founded in 1842, is the state's oldest continuing daily newspaper. The Galveston buildings were among the finest of the time. In 1881, the city won the site of the state medical school in the statewide election, partly because it was a hot spot for yellow fever. And thank goodness they, uh, they figured that one out. And then in 1894, the Grand Opera House was built and presented the best theatrical productions in Texas. Now, Galveston in 1900 was much different than it is today. There was no seawall, and the height above sea level was much different as well. The skinny barrier island was only about 5 feet above sea level. The highest point on the island was only 8.7 feet above sea level. That doesn't give much protection from 
a devastating thing like the hurricane that hit in 1900 or in any of the ones that have hit since then. Now, by 1900, Galveston had slipped in size to be the Texas' fourth largest city with a population of 38,000. But it was still her grandest and most advanced city. Galveston was a major business center for cotton, lumber, iron, fish, and oysters, and exporting and shipping. Had seven schools, 38 churches, and eight banks. Had the biggest port, the most millionaires, the classiest mansions. This all ended on September 8, 1900. She never regained her status despite refusing to die. In late August, a tropical storm formed in the West Indies. It moved slowly for six days, reached Cuba. The storm center passed over central Cuba on September 5th. It was at Key West on September 6th. And the United States Weather Bureau expected it to go north along the Atlantic coast. They were wrong. Now, storms are a part of life on the Texas coast, and Galveston had experience with several since its founding in 1838. There was a hurricane in October 1860 that killed several and did considerable damage. A four-day storm in June 1871 inundated the city with water and hampered shipping. September 17, 1875 witnessed a storm that left 30 dead. The hurricane of August 20, 1886 killed 38. And just nine years before the hurricane of 1900, in July 1891, a 12-hour storm had battered the city with high waters and damaged houses and ships. So having gone through all of that, Gallison Weather Bureau Section Director Isaac Klein wrote an 1891 article in the Gallison Daily News that argued it would be impossible for a hurricane of significant strength to strike the island, and in it he listed out all his reasons. Yes, storms would come, but nothing very devastating would ever hit Galveston. Now we're about to get into the events of September 8th and its aftermath. But first, I'd like to take a brief moment to take a break and thank Age of Radio for hosting Texas History Lessons. It's appreciated. At the time of the 1900 hurricane, Galveston, the Oleander City, was filled with vacationers. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. It had been extremely hot the day before, but then it got pleasantly cool as the winds shifted. And Galvestonians, they were used to occasional overflows when high water swept beachfronts. Houses and stores were elevated as a safeguard because of this. They were used to high water. Just because they were so close to sea level, they knew to build up. And at that time, sophisticated weather forecasting technology didn't exist. But the U.S. Weather Bureau issued warnings at some point on the 8th, warning people to move to higher ground. However, these advisories were largely ignored by vacationers and residents alike. And then the storm hit unexpectedly and left devastation and horror and nightmares for people to live with for the rest of their lives. I'm going to jump ahead to September 9th, 1900, and read a bit from the Houston Daily Post that describes the immediate aftermath. Yesterday's storm was one of the worst ever known on the Gulf Coast of Texas. 
What damage has been done is not known. For once, both the telegraph companies were knocked out and not a word could be secured from Galveston or other points on the coast. The long-distance telephone had no wires to coast points standing and communication was utterly cut off. Galveston was completely isolated from the outside world and all kinds of sensational alarming reports were in circulation. Mr. J.J. Grossclose of the Katy came up from Galveston on one of the last trains leaving the island. He said that standing on the rear platform, a person could not see the bridge 200 feet away as the water was lashed into a fury and was jumping over the bridge work. The last information that came through was over the Western Union wires at 4 p.m. This report said that the Gulf waters were encroaching rapidly on the beach and that the water had extended into the residence portion of the city for several blocks. The waves were very high and boisterous in the bay and considerable damage was being done to the small craft. The rain had been very heavy all day, and as the water could not run off, the streets were flooded, and traffic was entirely suspended save for waders, who were numerous. There had been no casualties, and but little damage except along the waterfront. At 4.30, the wind was increasing in velocity, and the waves were coming in higher. The people were not especially alarmed, as they have had similar experiences. Now, Houston knew something strong had happened because this storm went through Galveston, hit the Texas coast, did extreme devastation there, passed up into the Midwest, reached up to New York, and then went through Canada, leaving a trail of millions and millions of dollars of destruction. And the fact that there was no contact there was a there was a level of fear about what might have happened in Galveston in the previous day. Now, Catherine Vetter Pauls, who was nearly six years old in 1900, recalled that everyone went about their usual tasks until about 11 a.m. on September 8th, when my brother Jacob and our cousin Alan Brooks came from the beach with the report that the gulf was very rough and the tide very high. At about half past three, Jacob and Alan came running, shouting excitedly that the gulf looked like a great gray wall about 50 feet high and moving slowly toward the island. By noon, the waters from the gulf had inundated the island as far inland as 12th Street. From there, the waters gradually encroached inland, rising about 15 inches an hour. Another comment on the lack of fear. As the waters rose, everybody went around their business as if everything was just normal. Kids were playing in the in the rising tide, in the water running down the streets. Businessmen kept working. But as it, the day progressed, some people started to get a little bit apprehensive. But by then, it was already too late. At 6 p.m., there was 36 inches of water in the lobbies of the Tremont Hotel and the highest point in the city. Now, the Tremont is in the northern part of the city near the Strand, in the business section near the port. At 9 o'clock, the water on Market Street was level with the seats of the streetcars. After that, it gradually receded, but the wind was cyclonic in force. 
The wind blew against the tide. Bay water coursed in from the north and crashed into the stormwater from the south. Six-foot waves crashed down Broadway Avenue. Survivors recalled hearing wind that sounded like a thousand little devils shrieking and whistling. Slate shingles and other debris became instruments of flying death. During the storm, water swept through E-level streets, destroyed homes and buildings, wiped out electricity, roads, and communication systems. Hurricane winds estimated that the speeds of up to 120 miles an hour ripped across the coastline of the Gulf of Mexico. The unnamed hurricane swept in with a tidal surge of 15 feet so high that it swallowed the skinny little barrier island of Galveston. At about 6.30 p.m., this storm wave, sweeping ashore in advance of the hurricane's vortex, caused a sudden rise of four feet in water depth. The entire city was then underwater to a maximum depth of 15 feet. This storm wave caused much of the damage. The lowest barometer reading was 28.44, recorded shortly after 7 p.m. And by little after 10 p.m., the tide began to fall slowly, and little damage occurred after that. But what damage it had done was more than enough, and no one would ever want to go through again. One of the last people to get off the island before the worst hit was a Mr. Joyce. He reiterated the relaxed nature of Galveston's citizens as he waited to hear news. The people of Galveston did not think it was much at first and kept within their homes. Consequently, when the wind began blowing as it did and the water dashing against the houses, completely demolishing them, many lives were lost. I have no idea how many lives were lost, but think there will be several thousand deaths reported besides many people whom we will know nothing about. I was in the storm which struck Galveston in 1875, but that one, bad as it was, was nothing in comparison to Saturdays. The Gulf and the Bay are full of wreckage of every description, and it seems as if every frame house in town must have blown down and knocked to pieces, judging from the amount of driftwood that is floating about. I'm going back to Galveston just as soon as I can to find my sister's body and those of her children. All the bridges were washed away and 15 miles of railroad track were destroyed. Two-thirds of the buildings were destroyed. A relief train attempting to get to Galveston on September 9th could go only get as close as Virginia Point, about six miles from Galveston. And they reported that the prairie was covered with lumber, debris, pianos, trunks, and dead bodies. At 2 a.m. in the morning... Citizens on the mainland were trying to get tugs or any other craft that could get to go to Galveston's relief, but many owners were reluctant to risk their boats in the dangerous waters. But on September 10th, 1900, rescuers did arrive and found the city in ruins. They found bodies in heaps all over the ruined city. The waterfront was almost entirely gone. Every ocean steamer stranded in death and destruction on every hand. The money loss, they couldn't even begin to estimate because how severe it was. But that stood in pale in comparison to the number of dead. The steamer, the Alamo, lied upon the Mallory Wharf. And a big English cotton-laden steamer had been driven ashore in Texas City. 
Other vessels were aground in different parts of the bay, some hopelessly wrecked. The waterworks of the city were in ruins. The cisterns were blown away, so the lack of water was the, one of the most serious of the present problems. To quote the New York Evening World News that carried this story on September 10th of Galveston via Houston, there is hardly a habitable house in the city, and nearly every business house is badly damaged. The school buildings are unroofed. Ruin is everywhere. Electric lights and telegraph poles are nearly all down. The fine churches are almost all in ruins. The elevators and warehouses are unfit for use. The electric light plant has collapsed and so has the cotton factory. Whole blocks wiped out. From Tremont to P Street. Thence to the beach. Not a vestige of residence is to be seen. In the business section of the city, the water is from 3 to 10 feet deep in stores, and stocks of all kinds, including foodstuffs, are total losses. As soon as daylight came and the fury of the wind abated, the work of rescue and searching for the dead commenced. The great Tremont Hotel was made a rendezvous for the living. The women and children that had made it there slept in the dining room and parlors, and the men lay on the floors of the, in the hallways. To continue the quote, screaming women, bruised and bleeding, some of them bearing the lifeless forms of their children in their arms, men broken-hearted and sobbing, bewailing the loss of their wives and children, streets filled with floating rubbish, among which were many bodies of the victims of the storm, constituted but a tithe of the terrible scene. Uh, the first loss of life that had been reported was at Reader's Saloon on the Strand, where three persons lost their lives and many others were maimed and imprisoned. These three were sitting at a table on the first floor when suddenly the roof caved in, killing them instantly. Now, this was when the storm just beginning to, to show what it was going to be like when the winds got so severe that it did that. And then after that, it just got progressively worse. To continue my quote, a majority of the bodies, however, that have not been recovered are under ruined houses and it will take several days hard work to get them all out. Police officer John Bowie was found in a pitiable condition. The toes on both his feet and two broken ribs and his head bruised. He reported that his house with wife and children had been swept into the gulf. Not a building of Pat O'Keefe's Beach Resort remained. The Pagoda Bathing Pavilion, the Big Pleasure Resort bathhouses, the Olympia and Murdoch's had been swept into the gulf. At the St. Mary's Orphan's Home, ten Catholic nuns from the Sisters of Charity of the Incarnate Word and 90 children had died when fearsome waves destroyed two wooden dormitories that they were in. Uh, they'd been built there with the belief that being close to the beach, the ocean breezes would reduce the danger of yellow fever. The Sisters believing they were taking care of the young children, had tethered little groups of them together with them, to them with pieces of clothesline, thinking that in the worst-case scenario, they could keep them safe and together and not lose them. The doing this, in fact, led to all of their deaths because of the debris in the water was so great and the water was so violent that they all drowned. 
three older children did survive because they had not been tied together and they were able to grab a piece of driftwood to escape death. One of the nuns was found with about nine children tied to her several miles down the beach on the 9th, mostly buried in sand. There were reports in the newspaper that few bodies were on the beach, but what had happened is a lot of them had been swept in the gulf or driven up into the rubbish by the waves. A lot of them were covered by the sand and silt that had spread around. When the workers, relief workers, got to the beach, they saw about a half a dozen, but there were more there. All the residences which have escaped destruction have been turned into hospitals as the leading hotels, one report says. There is scarcely one of the houses which are left standing which does not contain one or more of the dead, as well as many injured. At 11.30 Sunday morning, the water had receded from the higher portions of the city, but the streets near the bayfront still contained two and a half to three feet of water. Some of the horrible discoveries that were reported, I, I'm not even going to attempt to share. It's just so heartbreaking. On the waterfront, the destruction of property was almost as great as on the beach, though the loss of life was not nearly as large. The wharves of the Mallory Company were completely destroyed. This report also mentions that and that the big steamship Alamo is lying among the ruins of the piers. The wharves of the Galveston Wharf Company were all gone, and the newly constructed wharves of the Southern Pacific Company were severely damaged to the amount of $60,000. The three grain elevators and the Ray Mershoffer mill were wrecked. The roofs and top stories of the buildings were gone and the grain ruined. Another report said uh, all the extreme eastern and southern part and the western portion south of Avenue Q to the Gulf is either washed away or demolished and the dead are thrown in every direction. One report said that 1,200 bodies had washed ashore above Virginia Point. In the aftermath, what do you do? You look for your loved ones, which is what people did. And the city leaders that survived gathered together, and the citizens formed a general committee for recovery with Mayor Walter C. Jones as chairman to organize relief and recovery and established subcommittees to focus on finance, relief, burial of the dead, and hospitals separation of power so that people could focus on specific things to get things taken care of. Burial of the dead became a very big problem. The bodies lying out in the afternoon, some, according to one report, they were frightful to look upon. Initial attempts to bury them was impossible. The ground was so saturated. Alderman McMaster and M.P. Morrissey arranged for use of a barge to do burials at sea. That ended up not working in the long run because so many washed back up to shore. Pleas went out for aid. President McKinley instructed the Secretary of War to immediately furnish tents and provisions to Galveston. People across the country began raising money and organizing donations of everything, including underwear, clothing, canned vegetables, barrels of rolled oats, salted beef and barrels, barrels of flour, bandages, and, and more. And there's still no getting away from the dead because they were everywhere. It was a numbing horror. As Gary Cartwright wrote in his history of Galveston, they were heaped together in the streets, strewn across vacant lots, 
sticking from mounds of wreckage, floating in shallow pools of water, scattered along the beach, bobbing in the filthy backwash of the bay. Most were naked, mutilated, and dashed beyond recognition. They hung like macabre ornaments from trees, trestles, and telephone poles. Many could not be identified by survivors, but survivors continued to search for their loved ones for days. So surprisingly, the early estimates for the dead, some of them were as low as 600 to 1,000. But for the most part, they expected it to be about 3,000. It turned out to be at least double or triple that number. By the 11th, 2,300 dead had been recovered. They again attempted burying some in the long trenches, as others were also still dropped into the ocean from a barge. But what they ended up having to start doing, they just started burying the bodies in the piles of wreckage. There was a shortage of horses to haul the dead and a shortage of people willing to help. Soldiers and police ended up forcing people to help at bayonet point. The burning of bodies continued until November. People on approaching steamships far out beyond sight of the city could smell the burning. On September 11th, there was fear of famine, pestilence, and reports of looting. There were accusations and reports that looters were hacking dead bodies, removing fingers and ears to get jewelry. One report said that a police officers and soldiers had shot at least 25 people that were looting. By September 13th, thousands left homeless by the storm had been able to get passage to Houston. Clara Barton and the Red Cross arrived on the 17th. By the 22nd, the city had railway service again and the hundreds of families took advantage of the railroad's offers for free travel to anywhere in the United States. Many of them never even came back to get any possessions if they had any left. After three weeks, the Houston relief groups went home and the electric trolley was again functioning. On October 14th, a huge shipment of cotton cleared port. Money had been flowing in from around the world in support, and the relief committee was able to provide meals at its commissary until February 1901. But they no longer had to do it after that point because after six months, commerce had revived and welfare was no longer needed. The devastation that this city underwent, and they immediately gathered themselves up and started trying to recover because that's what you do. We see it time and time again from everything from Katrina to Ike. You either give up and leave or you try to make things better. And that's what the city of Galveston tried to do in the years after the storm. Galveston refused to just fade away. Rebuilding Galveston involved constructing a reinforced concrete seawall that I mentioned before. 17 feet high, this is built. And then they also raised the city above sea level itself to protect against future flooding. Now, the seawall was 17 foot high and originally three miles long. Work began in 1902, and the first section was about, done by 1904. By the 1960s, it had reached over 10 miles. The massive seawall repels the gulf winds in the water, or that's at least its purpose. They also set out to raise the grade of the island. At some points, they raised the island by pumping in sand as high as they did the seawall. 
17 feet above sea level. And then it gradually grades down to where overall it's like, I believe I saw it's like an average of four feet, but it was a massive undertaking. They did this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of blocks. 2,146 surviving structures from from shanties to the massive 3,000 ton Catholic church were jacked up and sand was pumped underneath. They had to raise the streetcar tracks, fire plugs, water pipes. If you wanted to save your trees and shrubs and flowers, homeowner, you better do something about it because this was happening across the city. They were regarded as one of the engineering marvels of their day. And it's still amazing if when you're on the island to consider how large an area this is that they actually did this to. Yeah, Gallison was resilient, but she did not regain her former glory. Being a major port was no longer in her future. Houston had become a significant port after the Houston Ship Channel opened in 1914. It made Houston a deepwater port, variously ranked second or third largest in the United States. Galveston thereafter focused on tourism. This also happened at the time of the big oil boom, and no one wanted to invest putting a refinery or anything oil-related on Galveston because of the devastation that had happened. So Galveston no longer was the, the great port that it had once been. The hurricane of 1900, the ship channels, alternative sites for business and manufacturing provided by other modes of transportation created the island city of Galveston to a medium-sized city. It, had, it still grew. And by 1980, it had a population of 61,902 and ranked 29th in the state. The population of Galveston is about 48,000 currently. The committee form of government created after the storm with the mayor and four commissioners to manage the city's recovery was also a significant byproduct of the storm. Initially viewed as an emergency measure, the commission form of government was in place in Galveston for roughly 60 years. The Galveston plan, as it was known, was widely imitated by other cities and became the model for early 20th century municipal reform. In 1915, a storm similar in strength and track to the 1900 hurricane struck Galveston. The 1915 storm brought storm surge in of 12 feet. It tested the integrity of the new seawall. 53 people died, but this is far cry from the thousands that had died in 1900. The city's been pummeled again and again by hurricanes. Carla in 61, Alicia in 83, but they caused less damage than the one that struck 1900. Hurricane Ike devastated Galveston on September 13th, 2008. It was a Category 2 and followed along the same path as Hurricane of 1900, yet without the enormous loss of life. But it did inflict an estimated $2 billion in damage, and the Hurricane of 1900 still remains the worst-related disaster in U.S. history in terms of loss of life. And Galveston? Galveston keeps hanging tough. She isn't going anywhere. And I think that's going to conclude today's bonus episode. We will be having more episodes on Galveston. We're going to be taking a look at, in future episodes, Bernardo de Galvez, who's named after and his importance in not only in early Texas, but the American Revolution. And we're going to be looking at all kinds of different aspects of Galveston's history in the near future. There was a period of lawlessness when... They're basically 
a mafia family ran the city. Um, there's all kinds of different stories we can tell. And not just about Galveston, but about the whole state. And we're going to try to get to as many as we can as often as we can. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. You can reach the show to comment at Texas History L on Twitter. All lowercase Texas History Lessons at gmail.com. I want to thank Jay and Sergio and everybody else that's giving me positive feedback. I really appreciate all of you. And I, I hope that you enjoyed this one and that you're going to enjoy the next few that are coming out pretty soon. Thank you. Stay safe. Adios. Adios.